Welcome to this podcast on Indonesia by ICH, the Institute for Continuing History. The Institute is a professional research body that investigates acts of state-sponsored or communal violence, which continue to have a major impact on the lives of individuals and nations. This episode is part of our general educational series, which explores recent scholarship and debate on major acts of mass violence in different parts of the world. Today we focus on the little-known Indonesian massacres of 1965 and 1966, during which hundreds of thousands of alleged communists were killed in a purge orchestrated by the Indonesian army. The 20th century has been described as the century of genocide, with more killed in ethno-political violence than at any other time in human history. The Armenian Genocide, the Holocaust, the excesses of Stalinism and Maoist China, the killing fields of Cambodia, and the Rwandan slaughter have become symbols of the age. But there are others to which we have paid little attention. The Indonesian massacres of 1965 and 1966 were described shortly afterwards by the CIA as, quote, one of the ghastliest and most concentrated bloodlettings of current times, unquote. A purge that was responsible, in the estimation of some observers, for between 500,000 and a million deaths. The killings occurred across the breadth of the Indonesian archipelago and were extraordinarily brutal, performed in the main by basic weapons, swords, knives, spears, and frequently accompanied by beheadings and mutilation. And yet they rapidly slipped from view as the military regime of General Suharto took control slamming the door on dissonant voices and courting favour with the West. That situation has gradually changed since the fall of Suharto in 1998, leading us to understand more about one of the world's least known massacres. You are listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Doran. The website of the Institute for Continuing History is continuinghistory.org. The immediate trigger for the killings was the abduction and murder of six army generals on the 1st of October 1965. This apparent coup attempt was led by a commander of the Presidential Guard, acting in the name of a group that called itself the September 30th Movement. The operation was quickly suppressed. The commander of the Army's Strategic Reserve, Major General Suharto, retook control of the capital, Jakarta, within a matter of hours, and the conspirators were arrested or fled to other parts of Indonesia. During an emotive disinterment of the general's bodies 
from a dry well a few days later, Suharto pointed the finger at organisations affiliated with the Communist Party of Indonesia, or PKI, some of whose members had been involved with the assassinations. Killings of ordinary party members and associates of the PKI began shortly afterwards. The PKI was, at the time, said to be the largest communist party in the world outside of the communist bloc and had become close to the Indonesian president, Sukarno, and his political allies. Sukarno remained in office after the suppression of the September 30th movement, and while Suharto had taken control of the streets, it was by no means certain that he and the army would win the subsequent political tussle. The extent of the PKI's involvement in the apparent coup and the dimensions of the army's complicity in the mass killings that followed have remained shrouded in contention and obscurity in the decades since. The official army narrative is, in essence, that the September 30th movement was a front for the PKI, which, working in cahoots with communist China, tried to seize power, after which killings broke out organically and spread across the country, driven by revulsion and pent-up anti-communist rage. From as early as 1966, scholars critical of the official account have argued that the PKI had no rational motive for executing a coup in 1965. The party had achieved considerable success in pursuing a political road to power through Sukarno, and violence would have pitted it against a military foe whom it had little chance of defeating. An associated argument has been that it was, in fact, the United States and Britain that had strong motives for tarnishing the PKI and for provoking an attack on it by the army. Much of the debate about the coup has been, and remains, speculative. Available evidence suggests that neither Beijing nor Western powers orchestrated the coup, although a study of 2006, drawing on new documents, suggests that the head of the PKI may have been involved in the planning of the coup without the knowledge of his colleagues, and that he had told Mao about the plans in broad terms. The debate will continue and may never be satisfactorily settled. What no serious scholar, nor the regime itself, has contested is that the political left in Indonesia was, in effect, wiped off the map. And that meant not only an attack on the leadership of the PKI, but the murder of many thousands of the party's ordinary supporters, who had no involvement with the September 30th movement. The killings began in Aceh province, on the northern tip of the island of Sumatra, in early October, only days after the coup. They ceased abruptly in November, by which time 10,000 were dead, according to an estimate by historian Jessica Melvin. In central Java, two and a half thousand kilometres away, 
massacres started in late October and ended in mid-1966. A figure of 140,000 dead, based on a US diplomatic document, is typically cited. In early November, mass killings took off in neighbouring East Java and in North Sumatra, which bordered Aceh, where the first killings were, at that stage, continuing. A British consul based in North Sumatra's provincial capital estimated that 40,000 had been slaughtered by the time the ferment settled in March 1966. A Swedish official estimated that a combined total of 90,000 were killed in North Sumatra and Aceh. A Swedish missionary suggested that 200,000 were killed in North Sumatra alone. In East Java, although the killings were tapering there during December, a matter of weeks before they had begun, historians have proffered figures of between 150,000 and 200,000 dead. A contemporary estimate by the West Germans put the number at 70,000. In supposedly tranquil Bali, killings started in December and reached 80,000 within three months, nearly 10% of the population, according to calculations by historian Geoffrey Robinson. The significant variation in estimates and the fact that a number are derived from impressionistic contemporary observations indicates a large margin of error. Some of the figures are likely to be well wide of the mark. Historian Robert Cribb has written that a, quote, scholarly consensus has settled on a figure of 400 to 500,000, but the correct figure could be half or twice as much, unquote. And he has concluded that it is most unlikely we will ever know how many perished. That is an all-too-common phenomenon associated with mass killings and long-lived regimes, whose sheer durability tends to close the window in which forensic, oral and documentary investigations can establish more accurate figures. Yet one thing is clear in the Indonesian case, namely that the numbers were significant because even the more conservative estimates are sizable. You are listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Doran. If you'd like to learn more about the Institute's work and explore some of our other projects, please visit continuinghistory.org. So precisely which groups and individuals were hunted down? Who were those whose lives suddenly came under threat in 1965 and 1966? What criteria were used for selecting victims? One of the features that distinguishes the Indonesian massacres from many other mass killings is that ethnicity played relatively little part. It was, as noted, the PKI that was front and centre. It became very dangerous very quickly to be a member of the Indonesian Communist Party. The criteria were then largely political. Political, but also loosely associational. Indeed, the purge 
was so deep that many who were only tangentially connected to the PKI through family ties and other links were also targeted. Aside from their scale, the nature of the killings fed the notion, reflected in official histories and statements, that the people had run amok, that they had been overtaken by a wild, frenzied bloodlust. Certainly, the killings were not mechanical. They were distinguished by their often ferocious and sadistic character. Robinson, alluding to the weapons that were used, has described the Indonesian massacres as more akin to Rwanda or Cambodia than to the Holocaust. Drawing on a growing body of eyewitness accounts, he has also provided examples of the modes of killing that were seen in thousands of rural villages and towns across the archipelago. Most victims were detained for a period before being taken to sites of execution. The head of a Goodyear rubber plantation in North Sumatra explained to the Swedish ambassador what had been happening to scores of plantation labourers who had been detained. Quote, Every Saturday night a couple of trucks arrived and took away a hundred or so to the nearby bridge by a fast-flowing river. They were killed with jungle knives on the bridge and their bodies were thrown into the river. Unquote. Such flamboyantly brutal methods of killing and disposal appear to have been common. In East Java, the Bruntas River became congested with corpses and body parts. A witness recalled that, quote, In November 1965, the rains came. The river ran muddy and fast with weeds, leaves, human limbs and headless corpses, unquote. Another remembered, quote, Usually the corpses were no longer recognisable as human, headless, stomachs torn open. The smell was unbelievable. To make sure they didn't sink, the carcasses were deliberately tied to or impaled on bamboo stakes. Bodies were stacked together on rafts over which the PKI banner proudly flew, unquote. Beheadings dismemberment and public display of the remains occurred across the country. Headless bodies were left in sitting positions along roads. Heads were placed on bridges and paraded on poles. Genitalia were exhibited. Those who perpetrated the killings were, like their victims, defined largely by their politics and their institutional attachments rather than by other factors. They killed people from their own ethnic group, their own religion and their own areas. Murders were most often carried out by members of anti-communist militia groups, student organisations and civil defence formations that were associated with religious or political entities. Within that context, the precise role of the military, aside from the obvious involvement of some army personnel, has been a matter of controversy and conjecture for decades. Some scholars, pointing to wide variations in the extent and timing of violence in different provinces, have highlighted local factors, thereby de-emphasising the possibility of centralised control 
by the army. However, more attention has been paid to the role of the military in recent years, a process assisted by the fall of Suharto in the late 1990s. As a result, fingers have increasingly been pointed at the army as the key player in the killings. This trend can, for instance, be seen in the writings of Robert Cribb. In 2001, a few years after Suharto's demise, Cribb remarked that, quote, at first glance, the army's role seems clearly secondary to that of the broader social and political tensions. Nonetheless, several factors point to a greater direct military role, unquote. By 2007, he had, quote, come to the provisional but strong conclusion that the army played a central determining role in the killings, unquote. Others have since gone further. Melvin was the first person to access classified Indonesian government documents when she was accidentally given records of the National Intelligence Agency while conducting research at an archive in the province of Aceh. On the basis of an analysis of those documents, which dealt with military and civilian government activities during 1965 and 1966, she concluded that, quote, the military leadership initiated and implemented the killings in Aceh as part of a coordinated national campaign, unquote. Robinson, for his part, has written, quote, who then was responsible for the mass killings of 1965 to 1966. To put the matter simply, it was the army. The evidence is now clear that the killings were deliberately encouraged, facilitated, directed and shaped by the army's leadership. Without army leadership, the events of October 1st, 1965 would not have resulted in what some authors have called genocide. Unquote. Melvin's conclusions draw on a regional case study of limited scope, and no one has accessed archives at military headquarters in Jakarta, but there is no doubt about coordination between the centre and regional commanders in Aceh or their lethal intent. Such activity squares with the more fragmented evidence for other regions, therefore pointing with near certainty to similar findings of centralised planning and choreography should further documentation become available. You are listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History. The Institute's core work is cutting-edge, original research on some of the world's best concealed acts of mass violence. And we also track recent scholarship and debate on major episodes of violence that aren't covered by our own research programs. High quality educational outputs and groundbreaking investigations take time and require significant expertise and resources. So if you'd like to make a donation to our work, please visit continuinghistory.org. The reasons why the perpetrators of the Indonesian massacres were motivated to kill and to do it on such a large scale, is a complex question that defies glib simplifications and shallow generalities. 
Nevertheless, the scholarship points to a range of internal and external elements that made Indonesia particularly fertile ground for such an event in the mid-1960s. Here, the domestic and international factors reinforced and impacted each other at important junctures, just as local and national factors came together within the country to help produce conditions that led to widespread violence. Internally, social and ideological tensions became increasingly associated with national institutions such as the PKI, the military and religious organisations. There was a strong sense during the 1950s and into the 1960s that such tensions were unresolved, that they were gathering pace, and that the shape of the new Indonesian state formed in 1949 would not be determined until a reckoning of some kind had occurred. Cribb has noted that the communists, who saw a socialist state as ideal, were bitterly opposed by Islamists who believed that religion should form the basis of national life and who received strong support from village elites. The communists, for their part, garnered a significant following among the many Indonesians who were nominally Islamic, but who did not want to be governed by Islamic law. A third broad group was a loose collection of nationalists who emphasised modernity and development. One part of that group was represented by President Sukarno and his political acolytes. Another was represented by the largely anti-communist army. Relations between Sukarno and the army leadership had become increasingly strained in the 1960s as Sukarno moved visibly to the left. The PKI was the major beneficiary of that shift, gaining considerable political influence and the space to push policies that were regarded by other groups as a direct threat and a foretaste of what a dystopian communist Indonesia would look like. Among the PKI's campaigns were a call to arm a so-called fifth force of peasants that would operate alongside the armed forces, a proposal that alarmed the army leadership, and support for land seizures from village elites, acts which agitated the Islamists. Meanwhile, Western powers, including the United States and Britain, had become anxious about the prospect of a communist Indonesia, particularly as the Vietnam War escalated, and they began to encourage the army to move against the PKI and Sukarno. In such a powder keg, the assassination of the army's most senior officers was, in a sense, the most provocative act that could have been conceived. It is for this reason that the alleged coup has become the focus of perpetual conspiracism. Yet whether Suharto was blindsided by the murders or was complicit in their manufacture is less important than the manner in which he and his allies proceeded from that point. The subsequent liquidation of the left was not a surgical operation, but a radical political and social reconstruction of the Indonesian nation. The PKI was eliminated in its totality.
its leadership, its grassroots membership, and beyond, a process that was described by Suharto as a destruction of the September 30th movement, quote, down to the very roots, unquote. Those who were spared were detained, re-educated, and blacklisted over the decades that followed the killings. The long night for the survivors stands testimony to the enduring legacy of the Indonesian massacres. As with any mass killings, the residue is both visible and incalculable. Untold thousands were lost under circumstances that will prevent an accurate body count from ever taking place. Thousands of ordinary Indonesians also took part in the carnage, carrying their experiences and attitudes with them, impacting society with their pathologies in a multitude of ways that are no less real for the fact that they cannot be measured. The army and the regime, though they never embarked on another nationwide act of annihilation, nevertheless carried habits into the future as well. The brutality and atrocities that accompanied the invasion and occupation of East Timor only ten years later, and where the army fought to suppress another Marxist movement, almost certainly drew on the reservoir of instincts and methodologies developed during 1965 and 1966. It is now more than 20 years since Suharto was removed from power, but the hope that some kind of accounting would take place is fading, and so are both survivor and perpetrator. When Suharto fell, the killings were 32 years distant. They are now heading towards 60 years, and there is still resistance within Indonesia to further investigations. Indicatively, documents from the period remain classified, and not a single perpetrator has been brought to trial. As has been the case with many other acts of mass violence, it appears that the guarantors of impunity, the systems, the legal structures, the disciples, the protégés, will outlive those who created them. Victors don't always write the history, but they can frequently afford to ignore it by the time others begin to reconstruct it. So often with mass violence, there is an inverse relationship between the truth and impact. By the time we know a little more, it matters less. Certainly, such episodes matter for as long as their legacies remain. But the Indonesian massacres remind us that the battle for truth and a reckoning is, first and foremost, a fight that must be fought within a generation between perpetrators, witnesses and their supporters. You have been listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Doran. If you'd like to learn more about the Institute's work and explore some of our other projects, please visit continuinghistory.org.